Hello? This is Kamila Hankiewicz and I need to tell you what's going to happen. It's about you and AI. Ready? Hi, Nikolai. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You've been one of the top, top people I always wanted to have on this podcast. Uh, lots of people are seeing you as a guru, especially in customer experience and, and just understanding how the work um, of the future will look like. You've been having extensive experience juggling different roles um, in BT and elsewhere. Uh, so I think it will be an amazing conversation. I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it's difficult not to see it. Uh, you, you are such a vibrant personality. As a waistcoat wearing, you always, uh, you always highlight it also in your TED talk. <laughs> yes. You play ukulele and you love coffee chocolate or choc chocolate coffee. How do you think those unique aspects of your personality influence your approach to fostering creativity and innovation within uh, BT and elsewhere? I like to think I bring uh, a little bit of different thinking into, into the mix. Obviously, I work for a tech company and I always say, I'm half a technologist. I'm, I'm never terribly sure whether it is the waistcoat bit or, or the not waistcoat bit. But um, but yeah. uh, I, I'm half a social scientist, so I, I have a background in psychology. So instantly, that's quite a weird combination. Uh, I, I don't think chocolate and coffee are that weird a combination, to be honest, but uh, it seems very natural to me. But psychology and technology sometimes can be seen as a slightly weird one. And I, I always question the fact why why people think that is a weird combination because people have mm -hmm. to use technology so um so I, I i like to think that i bring um that thinking into a tech company to remind techies who do fabulous things and are incredible with technology that actually people do need to to use it and there needs to be a reason to use it um it's not that mm -hmm. they're just going to go whoa this is really cool technology i'm going to really adopt yeah. this because Unless you're a very early adopter and real tech enthusiast, that's probably not going to be the case. Um, so, yeah, it is really trying to bring a little bit of different thinking in. And I, I, I like to think the waistcoat, to be honest, firstly, mm -hmm. I don't really like suits. Um, uh, and secondly, I like waving my hands around. Um, so I, I quite like to have something that, that then has, doesn't doesn't mean I have to wear a suit. It's slightly more formal than a T-shirt. Yes. Um, but yes. I can wave my arms around. So that was, that was in itself a, a sort of creative solution to a problem. Um, and obviously I have about, right. about 10 or 12 different waistcoats um, that I, oh, wow. I, can, I can choose, <laughs> depending on my mood. But, uh, but yeah. Mm. But it's def definitely something which makes you seen from, from the outside as, as well. So you are perfect in uh, building your brand. <laughs> uh, okay. I know you've been in, uh, involved with BT for many, many years. You've worn lots of different hats. And I know that you also, uh, in your spare time, you are very creative, uh, so you sing. It's, I don't even know how to pronounce this um, Irish instrument. Oh, the baron, yes. <laughs> baron, baron. baron. Well, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just learning new things from you. As a vocalist and musician, you appreciate, obviously, the harmony of creativity and you bond it with technology uh, in, your, in your life. So how has your musical um, passion uh, influenced your innovative uh, approach, especially when you, when you design and draw parallels between, between designing uh, customer experiences? 
I don't know about, I mean, I've never really thought about it. I always say I, I was also very heavily into theatre and acting and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I'm also obsessed with film. So um, I sort of bring that. I saw your Twitter, I, by I, the way, yeah. ex-profile. Ex, ex I, I know. <laughs> I, I, I'm obsessed with a lot of creative things, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I think I used to be in a four-part harmony group. And I think you you, mm. you, you suddenly realise, particularly in things like four-part harmony, that um, having everyone the set, who, who can sing the same pitch and the same notes yeah. actually doesn't make a very good four-part harmony group. So uh, if mm -hmm. you want to take that analogy into business, um, it, the differences in us are... Oh, the bonus, if you like it, that's what uh, what the, the lovely melodies come out when you've got four, four different people with very different ranges um, and different mm -hmm. things uh, that they bring to the party. Uh, it enables you to create something different. And I think um, that that's one of the, the things I, I actually like about being in tech because I am slightly mm -hmm. weird. Um, but actually, I can <laughs> sing in tune with people who are, are much more deep techies and actually in, in things like AI, which... Uh, I did AI as part of my original degree because my original degree was applied psychology and computing. And, and I always say, mm -hmm. if, if you do psychology and computing, you either go into AI or you go into human factors and HCI and, and, uh, and user in, mm -hmm. uh, usability. And I did both, actually. Um, I started off in AI. But AI is one of those ones where, you know, psychology and, and the technology interact really, really closely. Um, in, mm -hmm. in the old days, you, you mentioned I've been with BT for a long time. Yes, I've been with BT over 30 years now. Um, so uh, obviously I started when I was six. Um, and But I started in that first <laughs> wave of incredible enthusiasm about AI before it hit the top mm -hmm. of disillusionment for about 20 years. But um but that was all about neural networks and learning and all, all of that fabulous stuff. So bringing that that sort of insight into people that were then saying, well, how do we encode this? How do we put it into a database? How do we get it out in, into natural language? All of that was really intriguing and still is, to be honest, because, of course, you might have noticed we're in that second incredible burst of AI energy at the moment and slightly different models being brought in as well from from other disciplines. But um, but that that's 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 the reason why I think we, we do probably need to think about bringing people from different perspectives in to create technologies that actually do work for everybody because everyone is different um, and we all bring yeah. our own unique perspectives so if we we can make everyone sing in tune um, that that would make beautiful technology in the end so yeah there's a music analogy I guess. <laughs> I know that you you publish a lot on uh, Future of Work and also on BT website and how do you see the the balance between automation and, and human touch. Uh, so what kind of strategies do you think, as you know, larger organizations are always very risk averse and they don't really particularly like to be early adopter, as you mentioned, how do you think you can help or how can companies at least try to innovate, try, try to uh, test various uh, technologies available already and to enhance uh, rather than replace human element. Yeah, well, I, I've always said there's sort of two arguments here. One is around automation and the other is augmentation. So we've already mm -hmm. seen a fair amount of augment, uh, automation. I, I work quite a lot with contact centers, for example. I always say I can get very geeky about contact centers because my PhD was actually on contact centers. So, uh, you know, they're fascinating places because they are where mm -hmm. people and technology come together. And I think, you know, mm -hmm. actually my first job in BT was looking at um, effectively a, a, an agent co-pilot. 
Um, so uh, the idea there was, you know, we had great agents who were really good at talking to people, but they weren't engineers, they weren't network experts, mm -hmm. and we didn't really want them to be. So how could we actually take the, the, the wonderful knowledge in the heads of our engineers and put it into a tool at that point called an expert system, uh, which the mm -hmm. agents could then use to actually interrogate, uh, to, to actually do the technical bit of their job so that they could then you know, concentrate on the customer. And I always say, yes. actually, it kind of worked. And we're, we're seeing that come along now uh, around that sort of agent augmentation piece. But in mm -hmm. the contact center industry, they've always been in the bleeding edge of automation. So that's mm -hmm. very much around taking all of those wonderful transactional tasks that nobody wants to do out. Um, mm -hmm. And to a certain extent, we've done that. Then there's the whole discussion around what well, does that make agents redundant? Well, no, actually, what we're seeing at the moment from our research is that actually customers are calling a lot more <laughs> um, because they've done they've tried the transactional stuff. And obviously, if they've done that, they mm -hmm. don't need the agent. But it's the complexity, the emotive stuff that they're reaching out to the human yes. for. Uh, so we're still having these conversations around automation should, if it's working right, um, take away the boring stuff. That doesn't make mm -hmm. the human redundant. That makes the human's role doing we have to do the complex stuff the emotive stuff the the stuff that's very hard to codify and actually that's the yeah. unique part of the human experience our, our brains are incredible to be perfectly honest um so actually you know having those brains engaged with customers to do active problem solving to to empathize potentially with a co-pilot uh, an ai co-pilot again sitting next to them mm -hmm. to fill in the gaps on they can't be experts on everything um particularly if you're you're a company i work with a lot of our, our major corporate customers they've usually got mm -hmm. incredible complex product sets and which are updated yes. quite frequently and we can't update yes. people's brains constantly because they've been in, in mm -hmm. training so we can't constantly take them off contact because to train them so actually we need tools to actually sit next to them and help them to interact what we don't want to do however is our brains do are great but they have limitations so i talk a lot about mm -hmm. cognitive load so if you imagine the cognitive load on an agent at the moment is they're having a conversation, they're having to listen to the customer, they're having to figure out what the customer is talking about. Sometimes they have to calm the customer down. And then often they're interacting with maybe 10 different systems, which they also have to remember how to use. So I think that the the uh, the augmentation piece is around, well, can we take some of that cognitive load on the technical side? out because it's difficult to take the, the customer side out so that's really where i i'm thinking in terms of that where do humans play in the, in this and, and i think mm -hmm. the emphasis in the future once we've automated pretty much as much as we can think about um how do we then allow ai and people to work together and i think that's 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 the interesting bit because again just mm -hmm. putting the technology in front of of people does not make them automatically go hey let's use it we spent a long yes. time building a knowledge system for agents, which they didn't use because they hadn't been involved. They didn't really know what like it was. some calls sometimes, Absolutely. right? Like the early, early versions of chats, chatbots. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and also, you know, the knowledge in their heads, if they're experienced agents, they think they know everything because they've learned and they do. Mm -hmm. and, and actually, that's their role in maybe teaching the AI um, some of this mm -hmm, stuff. Mm -hmm. But um, but even then, some of the stuff in their brain, again, we don't update their brains, brains enough. How can we update the systems more? But then how do we persuade them to just check? OK, is this the right thing to say? Or should, should it be something that's just very intuitive that pops up that isn't annoying, mm -hmm. which is the other thing that, that those prompts yes. going, yeah. did you know, have you checked? can become yes. incredibly annoying. And then if they become annoying, we either turn them off or ignore them, which means, again, it 
it doesn't work so well. Um, so I think there's a whole load of things around that sort of interaction piece that we need to be thinking about because people don't mm -hmm. just automatically go, hey, this is great technology. I'm going to use it. Um, so, yeah, yeah. There's, that, there's a whole load of horrific psychology behind why people adopt technology. So, uh, so I, I often yeah. talk about that. Yeah, and there are so many... Um all these like side benefits to to adopting uh, to enhancing human interactions with technology and uh, giving human access to the whole knowledge because like i'm I'm working also in a very similar field, and what we find is that oftentimes the solution to some particular problem, even for complex uh, product or service, has been already written or done somewhere by someone but one person cannot possibly keep, possibly see or know who who has done what, right? Yeah, and, and, and a lot of it certainly is around reputation. I mean, we, we found... Yes. Trying to understand the networks of how humans work together is fascinating. And by the way, that's also a, a lovely big data problem. But um, you often find experts who aren't necessarily at the top of the tree. They're not necessarily the leaders or the managers, but they're the key influencers. And actually, they're the ones that you need on your side if you're introducing new technologies, particularly new technologies that might challenge some of that expertise. And in a contact mm -hmm. centre, it's always fascinating to just look at the dynamics. So they're usually the people that the agents spin their chair around. If it's a physical contact centre, they spin their chair around and they will ask the question of. Um, so it's those guys that you go, oh, right, I need to talk to them because they're obviously mm -hmm. a key influencer and I need to get yes. them to help develop the system. So they become a key influencer in terms of people adopting that. So we actually had... In one of the studies I did, uh, one of those key influencers were, was saying to an agent who asked them a question, well, did you know you could find this on the system and show them how to do it um, so that the agent didn't ask that question again? They used the system. Um, so that sort mm -hmm. of thing, I think we need to think about in terms of adoption. But it is trying to understand that dynamic of, of you know, who knows what about what, who's the key influencer and they're the ones yes. you need to recruit. Yeah, yeah, I, com I completely agree. And it also helps to <clears throat> to um, do this knowledge transfer for uh, for onboarding, right? Yeah, yeah, completely. A lot of it's about education. I I, I talk yeah. about the three U's of technology. It's yeah, that's my next question. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm 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 jumping into the next question already. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's the, the three use are is it useful is it is it usable and then who else is using mm -hmm. it so useful usable used useful is in the eye of the beholder to be honest so custom most mm -hmm. technology is inherently useful um but unless people mm -hmm. think it is um they're not going to adopt it and a lot of that is about education it's about um mm -hmm. not just dumping the technology on someone's desk overnight um actually giving them an overview of what it does and as i said look at peer influencers who, who maybe have been you know trialists of the system to actually influence that so mm -hmm. and it needs to be a technology certainly on the usefulness if it makes people's job harder or indeed if you're a customer if it makes their life harder you've got a much yes. more uphill battle because frankly one of the common things we find in terms of psychology is most humans are lazy um so yes. uh, so we, we want we want the easy route um so with any innovation one of the first questions i always say is who does this make it easier for um if it's mm -hmm. for both the company and the customer brilliant that should work if it's the customer not the company actually that might work as well for the customer the company might question it if it's the company not mm. the customer you have to question why you're doing it um so i think that that's the first thing to consider 
the usability bit is the easy bit, to be honest. And I, I mentioned usability earlier. That was a fair proportion of my past career looking at usability. And obviously that's a whole science. And uh, whether you want to call it design thinking, which I think it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's most popularly known as now, that's really around, is it is it seamless? Is it frictionless? Is it easy to use? And obviously mm -hmm. you could measure that as well. Um, there's lots of metrics you can put in. That's why it's kind of the easy bit because it's more measurable. Yeah. The third bit, though, so useful and usable systems are not always used. Um, and that is really around who else is adopting it. And the the, mm -hmm. uh, the analogy I tend to use um, is social media, because the reason I adopt a social platform is probably because I know other people on that social platform. So that is all about peer influence. A social network mm -hmm. of one would be a bit rubbish, to be perfectly honest. So um, so it's who else is on the platform and who's influencing me to go on. And that, that works across the board. And obviously, you will then get tsunamis of people coming into the system. Potentially, you've got tsunamis of people going on to another platform as well uh, when the next trend hits. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of behavioural economics you can do there because you can influence or nudge people um, to do that. Um, and again, it's around trying to understand where those nudges should come. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and who who potentially should be doing those nudges because it is all about who else is using it. Are my peers using it? Do I recognise me in terms of people using it? Um, I, I did do a TEDx talk um, ages ago now um, on my very, very sad obsession with the adoption of ticket machines, which was exactly useful, usable yeah. use. Let's ask these questions and then figure out how we actually get people to adopt these more. Um, so yeah, very mm -hmm. topical at the moment as well, <laughs> but, um, mm -hmm. but yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned about how, um, about the modes or like the, the moods uh, a customer is um, at the point where he's using it, right? So when he's in, in critical situation, he may not use it. Yeah, I mean, that's, an, that's another classification that we've done. Um, so uh, we actually have done lots of research, which we've published under the banner, mostly of the autonomous customer, um, which mm -hmm. is actually, I, we're into our 13th or 14th year of doing that research. And oh, wow. it's global research and it's panel research. So what we try and do is to go into a number of countries and recruit 500 customers in each country that are representative for the, the, the age and demographic of that uh, country and we just ask them general questions around what do they expect from customer experience and what channels they use and i mean we've got some incredibly interesting um, pictures around how uh, channels are ebbing and flowing and what channels are, are the preferred channels for a start at uh, the phone uh, still mm -hmm. is the number one channel and we've always been astonished it, it did look as if it was going to go out at one point because it was yeah. going down in preference and then suddenly it went back up again and um, obviously I'm interested in the channels, but I'm also more interested probably in why, <laughs> what, what's going on <laughs> behaviorally here. Yeah. So when we did a lot of interviews with customers, um, we found that there were a few common themes. Firstly, customers don't obsess about channels. We as customer experience people do. Uh, customers don't. They have a goal, basically. And mm -hmm. underlying that goal, which is the significant bit, is an intention state. And that intention state tends to be either positive, negative or neutral. Um, so positively motivated customers, we call these visionaries. Um, so these customers typically are doing something they want to do. You know, they're getting married, mm -hmm. they're planning a holiday, um, you know, moving house. All of those things are really positive things. So they'll do their research. They're willing to invest some time, energy and effort into it. We call them shopper swaps, actually, in, in the retail situation because they will Google stuff. They will look stuff up. They'll read reviews. So they're quite mm -hmm. knowledgeable, but they can be also quite paranoid because this does matter to them. 
So I always say you can put information in front of customers. Um, you can give them lots of stuff. Actually, they're very omni-channel visionaries, but sometimes they just do need a little bit of a nudge or, or just a mm -hmm. bit of reassurance. This is the right thing for you. Yeah. Personalization is a great thing to do for uh, for visionary mm -hmm. customers because if you can know enough about the customer, you can then mm -hmm. kind of use the technology to say this is the mm -hmm. right thing for you or at least curate those choices. So we can use technology here. They sometimes do need just a little bit of human reassurance, but they're lovely customers to have. The trouble is most of us often don't have those customers. So um, we tip into negative, particularly if we started positive and we hit a problem um, or we could start negative. We call these customers in crisis, as you, you mentioned earlier, and, and the whole chemistry of the brain starts to change because weird hormones start to run in when we're angry or frustrated or, you know, scared even. Um, so that disrupts our thinking patterns. So we, we're, we're not logical. Uh, at that point, um, there's a lot of illogic. There's a lot of tunnel vision. Even our short-term memory capacity starts to 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 uh, well, it halves actually. So mm -hmm. normally you would design to short-term memory capacity, which is thought to be there's a debate at the moment, but seven to nine bits. Um, now I used to design IVRs, those lovely press ones, press twos um, that everyone hates. Uh, oh. does. Um, <laughs> I feel sorry. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry about that. But um, but generally on a top level menu, you would do press one for this, press two for this, press three for this. That would be six bits of information that I need to store in my brain. I might get another option in, but it's forcing that short term memory capacity. And then you mistakenly click the wrong button. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or just don't know what to push because you can't remember yeah. the trouble is of course yeah. if you're angry and frustrated if your short-term memory capacity halves you go from seven to nine bits right the way down to three four five so mm. putting complex information in it's like press one for this press two for well actually i probably can't remember what one is if i'm angry um so i keep saying with a customer in crisis this is why they reach for the phone typically because they usually want to talk to a human they want to vent they want to you know hand their problem off and get it solved um, if you're going to put technology in, you've got to make it very simple. Um, so, you know, that that's the simplicity piece. But largely, when we look at those graphs about people using the phone, consistently we get customers in crisis doing that. And we're seeing that in the patterns into contact centers now. Despite a lot of automation, people are still using the phone. In fact, if the automation fails, obviously the phone is often their first port of call as well. But I keep saying, you know, that I've talked about the positive and the negative. There is a middle point. Um, we call them utilitarian. So these aren't completely neutral. Um, they actually really do value things like um, value for time, value for effort. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if you make everything really easy and put easy, simple automation in front of these guys, they will accept it. Um, if, if it goes wrong, they'll tip into crisis mode and become very different. Um, this is the thing. Actually, what we've done in the past when we started to learn about this, we were saying, well, how much information can we get about the customer up front? And then can we start to signpost them, nudge them again to the channel that is likely to be their channel of choice? So if they're in crisis, yes, maybe put some simple tech in front of them, but ultimately mm -hmm. get them through to a human agent um, because that's actually where they probably want to go. Visionaries give them lots of channels. Don't confuse them. Give them access to, you know, a tool or humans to give them that nudge but utilitarians you should if you do it right you should be able to take that all the way through using technology mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and do not duplicate the effort like <laughs> when customer for example uh, already feels some information i don't know over 
feel some some form and then they ask them to do the same thing somewhere else yeah and we're, yeah. we're seeing that with bots i keep calling bots ivr yes. for, for, for digital because um we're, we're almost seeing that that horrendous press one press two play out in the bot world now because <laughs> as you said the worst thing is you have a conversation with the bot the conversation ends with the bot either can't help or and then you have to start again on another channel which is probably going to be the phone could be chat um it's chat brilliant because then you can port that whole conversation across to the agent actually you can on voice as well but um but yeah theoretically then the best experience would be the human agent picks up seamlessly um and, mm -hmm. and that's where some of those disconnects certainly some of the bot projects i've worked in on in the past uh, the bots developed completely separately from the contact center. So the two don't interact at all. I think the most successful deployment is absolutely around, can you skills-based route that to the right agent with the right skills and also port that conversation across? So it's, from a customer perspective, completely seamless. Um, and that's a good experience. Right. So this is, this is all about this net and easy score, which you developed the methodology, right? Some of it is. I mean, um, mm -hmm. I mean, NetEasy was came out again from the autonomous customer research because one mm -hmm. of the things that um, came out very obviously time and time again when we asked customers was what did they want from a customer experience? And there was always a very high percentage of people just going, can you just make it easy? Um, oh. and, and actually, during oh, what does it mean? Well, yeah. And, and that was the problem, because then you get into the argument, well, OK, so this is clearly an issue for customers and it's something that drives a lot of customer behaviors. So how do you measure it? Um, and actually we did try customer effort scores. This was a long time ago and those customer effort scores have changed completely. But yes. in the original uh, way of asking a question on an effort score, uh, again, they have made this a lot easier, but it was how much effort did you need to put forth um, mm. to do what you needed to do today? And then customers came back and said, I'm not sure I understand the question. So we had to make the question easier. Um, and actually at the yeah. time, again, there wasn't net net promoter score was out there. And so we, we kind of thought, well, can we do net promoter score for easy? So that's what we did effectively. So we asked one question, how easy did you find it? And you rank difficult, easy, don't know. Obviously you can then assign values to that. Um, so if you're negative, you're difficult. If you're positive, you're easy. Um, so it's exactly the same as the net promoter. Um, but for that, I. I I'm not a huge fan of the net promoter score, I must confess. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's quite a good sort of blunt instrument for the the, the board, um, but I'm not mm -hmm. sure it really gives us, if you're looking at an operational level, it doesn't necessarily give you the clues that you need on how do you change things. Um, and the, the net easy score did. Um, so, you know, actually going back to the IVR, um, like most IVRs, uh, we discovered that our IVRs were not very easy. I think we got to about hmm. press 52 at one point because like most IVRs, hmm. it had kind of mutated rather than was designed. Um, uh, so, I mean, the consequence of knowing that that was being a, a point of significant friction with customers meant that we could start to redesign it. So. Um, take the option numbers down, so not press 52, press maybe six, as I said, playing to that short-term memory capacity, using a lot more natural language, using the customer's language, not the department's language. All of those things, we could start to see the easy score shift. Um, and actually, oddly enough, the other correlation we found was net easy actually did correlate very highly with the net promoter score because it's not really rocket science to figure out that people that are finding you difficult are probably not going to recommend you yeah so, yeah, yeah. There, there is a definite link between those two scores hmm 
Okay, <clears throat> so what do you see the current trend uh, and where do you think it's going in, in, in terms of collaboration, engagement and, and customer experience? Maybe, you know, since you've been also doing lots of work in, in AI, in, uh, in natural language, do you think this is, this is the, the, main, the main technology right now adopted or there are some other, others? I mean, to be honest, when, when you look at the future world of work, which is my other piece of research, it's a lot of the mundane mm -hmm. technologies um, that have accelerated mm -hmm. the ways that we work. So I call them the holy trinity of technology. So there's cloud, there's collaboration tools and connectivity. That's what's allowed us. I mean, to be honest, those tools were around way before the pandemic, but the pandemic yes. kind of drove that that bullet train um, into forcing people no to choice. think very differently <laughs> yes, about the yeah, way of working. Yeah, yeah. Had we had a pandemic, I mean, one of my first jobs in BT was our first homeworking trials back again in the 90s. If we'd had a pandemic in the 90s, it was costing us £11,000 a seat to set someone up at home simply because we had to oh. bulldoze their front gardens because there was no such thing as Wi-Fi or 4G or 5G at the time. Um, so we actually had to lay a physical pipe. So I think we would have ground to a halt if we'd had a pandemic in the 90s. It's the, those mm -hmm. holy trinity of technologies that got us through. I think the debate then is those technologies have been around for a while. So video being a prime example, um, been around for a very long time, hadn't been widely adopted. Now is part of the infrastructure of our lives, whether that's mm -hmm. in our personal lives or, or, or in our work lives. That allows us to think a bit differently. But as we know, playing out in the press at the moment um, is a whole load of discussions around hybrid working. Is it good? Is it bad? Yes. I've seen it accused of all sorts of things. I think there was actually a headline in one of one of the papers yesterday saying that people were were um, well, actually, it, it was a slightly interesting headline because I think they were suggesting that people were napping and having sex at home rather than actually working. Um, I think I've been doing it wrong, I think, but um, but. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, eating <gasps> cheese, um, actually, one, there was even a utility. Eating cheese, you said. In, eating cheese was one of the other ones that, that got bandied around wow, at one okay. point. Um, again, not doing a lot of that. Um, there was one of the... Uh, during during, uh, during uh, meetings? So. <laughs> I mean, the other more intriguing one, there was a utility director that, uh, that said that people were using more water when they were working from home. So I keep saying, those of you in the shower at the moment... Get out. Um, oh, the shower. I thought like water, water, like using and uh, drinking. Sorry, yes, using. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think I drink more water at home than I would in the office. So net, it probably is, is, a, is about the same. But, um, but yeah, I, th I think there's a lot of... Um, a lot of opinions flying around. I, I again, I'm, I'm a scientist, so I look at the data. The data is, yeah. is a lot more nuanced. And I think, again, those mm -hmm. technologies are allowing us to be very effective to do quite a lot of things outside those four walls of an office. But I think one of the critical questions with hybrid work is to ask, well, what's an office for? Um, yeah. And that's quite a difficult question to answer. Um, and I think because it's all things to all, all people, um, you'll get a different answer depending on, on who you ask as to what the office is for. The key is mm -hmm. it's not a one size fits all um, design anymore. Mm -hmm. It needs to be an attractive pe place for people to go to do the things that they want to do in an office, which typically are around, to your point, collaboration, uh, connectivity um, in terms of connecting with people, building those human networks mm -hmm. and also creation of community. Um, so, uh, so those are the things that we need to design offices for. Obviously, not everyone mm -hmm. can work at home or wants to work at home. Um, so we also need spaces where you can do quiet work. Um, so uh, yes. away from the distractions and particularly when you get into 
people, for example, in the neurodiverse spectrum, um, exactly. the office, mm -hmm. they would struggle, they struggle with. Um, so mm -hmm. how can we Most create of... areas which are much quieter? If they do have to come in, to be honest, one would question why, because their productivity will dip significantly. But, you know, if we do need to, to bring them in, can, is there a quiet space that they can work from that isn't a hot desk? They want their own desk. Mm -hmm. They want a familiar environment. So, again, that's a challenge. I think the thing is, offices are becoming a lot more fluid in terms of how they're being mm -hmm. used, who's in them. We know on Fridays, no one is in them. Um, so should we open the office? As quite a lot of people close their offices now on a Friday. Um, should we heat an entire office or cool an entire office if there's only six people in? That's a game where we can use data better to try and figure out who's in. Can we start to create hot spots and cool spots rather than heating the whole building? Again, with a climate crisis, mm -hmm. got to try yeah. and figure this out. Um, so I, I think there's a whole load of ripple patterns around. If we just take those three very simple technologies, uh, Holy Trinity, um, there's a whole load of things we can discuss. And then, of course, mm -hmm. AI overlays that. Um, so mm -hmm. all of the discussions around generative AI at the moment, I mean, the press again are hyping it up and saying, OK, it's going to be lo loads of people redundant. Well, uh, it's very difficult to automate an entire job, but certainly we can automate mm -hmm. tasks within a job. But actually, that isn't necessarily about redundancy. That's about productivity. And I think that's, again, how, how do we augment as well as automate? I think that that's the big discussion there. But there's undoubtedly uh, a, a very big place for AI into the future around. Could we make us, ourselves more productive? Does that mean we could do a four day week uh, work a lot mm -hmm. less? Well, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> But going back to, to to your productivity and hybrid work or, um, bit, do you know any <clears throat> research? Uh, have you read any interesting findings um, uh, using data? Uh, if working from home is indeed, you know, less effective in certain situations or maybe certain uh, industries? Yeah, I mean, the place I go for data at the moment um, is the fabulous Nick Bloom at Stanford, mm -hmm. um, who is, admittedly, it's tends to be slightly biased towards the US. Um, but he's actually uh, producing tons and tons of data at the moment. Uh, and obviously, the data is changing. Um, that's the fascinating thing about this. Uh, peak office was mm -hmm. February, um, which is mm -hmm. understandable, actually, because it was cold. Um, and energy costs were very high. So exactly. people were fact, I call it value for commute. People are at the moment making some quite interesting judgments around well, if I commute, particularly if it's a long commute, yeah. I commute two hours into an urban location. Am I getting the value for that commute? So when I'm in an office, am I getting that 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 connection, that collaboration, that creation of community? Um, am I able to do what I need to do? Is the Wi-Fi good enough? Um, quite, yeah. quite a lot of it, because inevitably, because we're going more hybrid, a lot of meetings now, even if you're in phys a physical office, are in the digital world, because even if one person can't come in, you've got to go digital's then your default. So I keep saying, if you're looking at a hybrid model, it's not about the office and it's not about home. It's about how do we create a digital platform that is effectively that common ground for everyone to work on. Um, and then of course, you've got to tackle the horrible hybrids, which I would include the hybrid meeting because um, we've all been on them. Half the people in the room, half the people in the digital yeah. space, the people in the digital space are ignored by the people in the room yeah. because simply there's no physical presence. Um, and the technology's still not quite there. Um, so, you know, although we can we can put lots of cameras in and, and do spatial audio and all of that lovely stuff, 
Can we start to bring in some of the other trendy technologies? Um, I always say I have to mention both AI and the metaverse because um, my innovation credentials would be revoked otherwise. So could we start to bring in more metaverse type technologies to create more presence from the digital uh, mm -hmm. world? And that could range from, you know, a, a mixed reality uh, space where you beam people in full size um, to holograms actually is a, something we're looking at in terms of volumetric video. Uh, so could you beam people actually physically in, in as a hologram uh, to much more mm -hmm. simple deployments? I mean, I'm less convinced about virtual reality headsets because I tend to vomit. I call it vomity reality. But um, can, can I start to create maybe mixed re um, aug augmented reality environments where I get a much more tangible sense of presence and, and again that common ground between the physical and the digital because our brains again are brilliant but they're quite primitive they're cave brains so we tend to include and, and trust people that are in physical proximity to us and I think that's again I can understand why people want people to be in the office because that's a very big reason why people are in the office but again you know not everyone's going to be there we're constrained by geography so how do we use the digital world to create something more compelling um in the digital mm -hmm. sense i hate that word but mm -hmm. how do we bring physical and digital together in a much more i guess again seamless easy environment that can enable us yeah. to collaborate in very different ways mm. have you been thinking of and uh, uh, giving giving any thought about neural hacking and you know what's obviously Elon Musk is trying to do with with the Neuralink and and the other similar companies maybe only then is going to like the, the adoption of of uh, virtual holding like virtual offices will be happening yeah I mean I used to be a futurologist so this was certainly one that uh, that we we were looking at ages ago again um, uh, so uh, Peter Cochran who used to be my old boss in BT um, was always talking about effectively what Elon Musk is now talking about. Um, I think the issue is, so practicality, I'm not sure. Our brains are very complicated mm -hmm. and we don't really understand how they work yet. So actually yeah. having something that will share my experience with someone else using a Neuralink is an intriguing question and certainly there, there's been like Kevin Warwick actually one of the academics who literally had a chip inserted in bits of his body to to communicate with his wife actually I think initially um you know that that was very intriguing but very invasive um mm -hmm. and, and I'm not sure dangerous yeah I'm not actually sure I want a chip implanted and then again if we didn't then talk about privacy is my every thought then going to be transmitted um how do mm -hmm. I turn this off um, we even, I mean, one of the academics we used to work with at MIT, uh, Steve Mann, uh, was one of the early adopters of augmented reality, where he constantly broadcast live onto the internet using a headset. And it's kind of, you mm -hmm. need boundaries there, because if you go to the bathroom, yeah. you probably yes. don't want to be broadcasting live. And I, I think with Neuralinks, <laughs> it's again, there are times where I don't want to be broadcasting my every thought. So how do we, there's mm -hmm. a lot of ethical questions behind the, uh, that, that particular mm -hmm. technology, as well as the feasibility of will it actually work um but mm -hmm. for, for again if you're, we're looking at um things like disability um I, those kind of interfaces could actually provide a lifeline for people that for some mm -hmm. reason cannot communicate so i think that there mm -hmm. is always a real positive spin as well as, and a much more inclusive spin on some of these technologies um that mm -hmm. might be more beneficial for that community than possibly anyone else
Yeah, and I see lots of <clears throat> examples. I don't know how good they are, or it's just POCs, basically. But um, VRs being used, or like the headsets being used in um, healthcare and people with like heavy uh, medical conditions. Yeah, I mean, and even down to we're, we're looking at changing the nature of collaboration with it. So one of the one of the things mm. we're working on in the augmented reality space is, is in the healthcare uh, sector. So having a paramedic with an augmented reality headset on and a haptic glove working mm-hmm. in conjunction with a remote um, clinician um, who also has a pair of glasses on who can effectively then see through the paramedic's eyes. So we're looking at right. you know high definition video. Um, the fun bit, of course, is the touch bit. So the clinician has a joystick um, that is driving the haptic glove. So what they can then do is nudge the paramedic's hand to make sure that they've got their hand in the right place to do procedures that they wouldn't be able to do unsupervised. So we're looking at changing that dynamic. Obviously, hopefully the target of that is to reduce hospital admissions um, so that we can do an awful lot more via the paramedic and the ambulance rather than having to to uh, to put everything through the hospital so watch this space on that um i think there are a lot of technologies uh, that can change that dynamic around um mm-hmm. collaboration bringing in remote second opinions doing some tasks that we would maybe think need to be co-located um like hairdressing even um you know could we have a robotic arm doing our hair Ooh, yeah. i'm not sure i'd like that at the moment i would be scared around sharp objects but i saw <laughs> some <laughs> some uh, <clears throat> machines i think it's in san francisco it's quite uh, popular and uh, you have your nails painted yeah uh, <laughs> There were some obviously machines trying to do pizza, but I would still prefer to go to Italy, ideally. Uh, Agreed. To have my pizza <laughs> done by Paolo. <laughs> so I know that you are, because you said like you are also a huge fan of, of um, movies, and I'm sure you've seen lots of futuristic uh, themed uh, movies. So what do you think about the, this kind of vision of the future, like uh, about human interactions and how like, and use, using or living in, in metaverse, if, if, if I can say, like the re- Ready Player One scenario or Lucy? Yeah. Although Lucy is a bit different, I think. Or you think it's going to be, I think you already asked, answered the question in this area, but it will be more like a hybrid between AR uh, or using tech while still focusing on physical uh, bits, like falling in love with a real person made of flesh, not some kind of Android. Yeah, I mean, I always, as the, with my futurologist hat on, I always say that if you want to go any more than about a year, year and a half into the future, you probably want to look at science fiction. And certainly that, that mm-hmm. you know, if you're looking at a 10 yeah. year, 20 year vision, Look at some really good science fiction based on real science and whether that's mm-hmm. you know novels or movies. Movies have tend to be a slightly more accessible way of, of exploring the future. And we've always done it. I mean, I, I, the number of techie people, uh, including myself, who have been influenced by the likes of Star Trek. Um, so mm-hmm. th- those visions of technology, some of them have come true. You know, the, the Star Trek communicator was very much influential in the design of things like the iPhone. Yeah. Um, so we can see that um, pan out into real design. Um, I think for those future scenarios, actually, science fiction is one of the essential things to to look at. So everything from, 
I mean, if you're looking at film Minority Report, I think uh, that was actually um, MIT did uh, did the technical consulting on that. So very solid science. Mm. And you can kind of see that, that augmented reality future panning out in that. So with the haptic gloves, with the with the interfaces that are being manipulated, with the uh, surveillance society. Um, that's yeah. the interesting bit about Minority Something Report. Something is happening in, in some countries. Completely right. So, yeah. And again, you have to question, is that a society I'd want to live in? Um, on the more positive, and do they even have a thing? Well, yeah, <laughs> I think the more positive visions. Um, I mean, I, I actually am a big fan of uh, her, um, which is a very low key movie with Joaquin Felix and Scarlett Johansson, where Joaquin Phoenix falls in love with the operating system. Yeah, voiced by Scarlett. I mean, who wouldn't? Um, but you know, um, I think. Um, that world is so interesting in terms of the way that it's realized mm -hmm. so obviously having the operating system be so human and so compelling that he can fall in mm -hmm. love with it but if you look at the other things that go on in that particular universe his job is to write letters and the yeah. value in that that society is the written letter because everything has been automated so for very mm -hmm. high value interactions they write a letter um, I think that's beautiful. So that's that's all around, you know, mm -hmm. valuing human humans slightly differently. The other thing about that whole design is that the, the cityscape is actually optimized um, for pedestrians uh, and green transport. Um, so it's mm -hmm. not a car based society. So I always cite that as one of my favorite films. It's not you know, it was never a big blockbuster and not a huge number of people have seen it. But in terms of that realization of, of a future that actually I would quite like to live in, that's that's one of the ones mm -hmm. I usually hold up. I remember the the main the the main plot, but I don't remember this bit about uh, not having cars. What was the reason? What, what, how did they? They were just it? envisioning a society, a, a likely society. So it was clearly a society that had uh, had looked at climate change and, and optimized cities to to make mm -hmm. it a green. Mm -hmm. To be honest, we're seeing it now with things like the discussions on the fifteen minute city. Now those discussions mm -hmm. have been going on for many years. To be perfectly yeah. honest, but. With the climate crisis and carbon targets and all of that lovely stuff, um, you know, it's become part of that conversation again. So can we create urban environments that don't need cars? And that that's mm -hmm. a good example of a film that, that had that kind of, it wasn't central to the plot at all. It was just mm -hmm. something yeah. that was in yeah, the movie. I don't remember that. <laughs> um, they want to do it in Paris, I think, right? Like the yes. 15 minute city. But in a way... London is similar, right? Like they, there is, it used to be lots of different villages, and uh, at some point, like in, in some way, you can find everything within. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are a lot of discussions across the world. I think on the fifteen-minute city, it's a, it's. I mean, it's a much criticised model as well. Um, it creates a lot of duplication. In, in some senses, it's quite difficult. You can't have a hospital necessarily within 15 minutes of everybody because you simply don't mm -hmm. have the medical resources. So um, yeah. so it's it's somewhat of a nirvana um, it, to have absolutely mm -hmm. everything within a 15 minute walk or, or cycle ride away. But it's nice to think about it again. You know, if you're looking at a, a future I want to live in, potentially that that's one. Um, do I want to live in the mm -hmm. Matrix or Ready Player One? Probably not so much. <laughs> Going back to your like uh, lack of resources in terms of uh, medical and um, medical stuff, you know, we are going. We mentioned about machines and rob robots. You know, the problem with uh, aging society in Japan. Like yes. they uh, they invest heavily in building uh, software and hardware to to sort this problem. 
Yeah, and it's intriguing that perception of robots in Japan is very different to to Western perceptions of it. I think it's because they do have a massive demographic issue um, in that they have a a, a dwindling uh, younger workforce to help uh, an increasing older uh, um, population. So um, robots are a a possible answer. Um, So I don't think there's Mm -hmm. so much of the discussion in the Japanese press, although... I, I did speak a little bit of Japanese at one point, but I can't read it. Um, but I've no idea if they're going, robots are taking our jobs. Um, whereas the press here tend to uh, to, to dwell somewhat on the, the, the more negative mm-hmm. aspects of that. Um, yeah. Again, they look at the automation rather than the augmentation. But yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I think robots are, they certainly do have some use, um, certainly in some yeah. of those healthcare things where you simply don't have the resources to manage it. Um, it it's it's mm-hmm. a way of managing a problem, but it, it doesn't necessarily replace the human. And they fit it nicely with uh, their concepts of futuristic, robotic uh, Japan con- versus the traditional one. So they need to you know, they need to promote it heavily as well. Yeah, although I, I, I always say that the uncanny valley is is one of the big issues with those humanoid robots, and I, I don't think that's been solved yet. I still find them a bit creepy. My ideal robot would be, I mean, um, again, going back to movies, Baymax, um, I think is my one of my favourite um, in, the, in um, Big Hero 6. Um, not remotely humanoid, um, but, you know, is cute and, and cuddly and... Um, yeah. apologizes a lot and, and is empathetic to a certain extent that machines can be. So Japanese. <laughs> well, I, actually, oddly enough, it was based on a manga cartoon. So, um, oh, so, right. uh, okay. so yeah, I mean, it, it actually is a Japanese um, vision of it, but that's more the robot I like. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure I want any AI to be human um, because mm-hmm, they're obviously mm-hmm. not. And I think there's a lot of research, obviously, out in the human computer interaction field around um, should we make bots uh, or robots humanoid mm-hmm. probably not because people even if they can't necessarily tell now and certainly with the generative ai it's quite convincing in, in terms of the mm-hmm. the avatars we can generate um there was a very fascinating study i saw presented at Nudgestock this year it was saying even if we can't tell on a conscious level we can tell on an unconscious level and that means that our degree of trust tends to drop um, because we just go it's kind of a, a a cognitive uncanny valley if you like we're just going mm-hmm. There's something slightly off on this. Um, yeah. So uh, I think, yeah, that's an interesting one around um, that, that uncanny valley piece. So I always say, you know, if you're going to build a, an AI, don't make it human or don't make it pretend to be a human. Um, mm-hmm. Go the Baymax route. It's kind of cute, but it's obviously not. It's not. You can human. see the difference. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because it's there is lots of weird applications as well uh, on in terms of software. I've, I'm sure you've heard of Replica. They uh, you can upload your maybe uh, your member of the family who is no yeah. longer here, and then communicate with them. It's, and some people also not maybe not for those members, but uh, with they create some avatars ab- uh, of their ex girlfriends but make it in a way that they the girlfriend actually loves them it's just like crazy depending on where they it is crazy i mean again if you look at the psychology behind it we tend to anthropomorphize anything um we we anthropomorphize our cars so and and that Mm -hmm. because our, our brains tend to interpret everything in human terms so if if I can generate an anthropomorphic replica of somebody who I've lost or someone I know, 
it, it, on the surface it looks creepy but you can see psychologically why it kind of works but um yeah mm. it is a bit creepy <laughs> It is. How can we ensure the responsible uh, use of technology and, you know, just making sure that we still stay mentally in, in the presence, not focusing on our th thought and time on something which, yeah, doesn't exist? I mean, again, it's around... So particularly with AI, I think you do need that that multidisciplinary team. So that those those mm -hmm. people singing in harmony um, coming out mm -hmm. from different areas. So you need technologists who understand the technology. You need psychologists that understand the, the interaction or social, just social scientists. It doesn't matter um, uh, to, to, to help kind of understand that human component. You need ethicists. Uh, definitely need ethicists to, to figure mm -hmm. out, you know, is this that we could build it, but should we? Um, going back to Jurassic mm -hmm. Park mm -hmm. on that one, isn't it? But um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, yeah, I, I think you do need a multidisciplinary team to look at this um, because there are so many things we could do with this technology. But we do need to sort mm -hmm. of step back and say, firstly, does it pass the three use test? So is it useful? Is it mm -hmm. usable? Am I likely to use it? Um, and then obviously you do need people to to look at the wider business contexts and figure out, you know, ethically and legally. Uh, where do we stand? I think generative AI is one of those ones that is pulling all of those questions up. Um, yeah. I was in a session the other day where um, a lawyer actually um, asked everyone to contribute one word to a story. Um, and, mm -hmm. and then at the end, when they generated the story, uh, she said, who, who owns the story now? Mm -hmm. And that's that's I mean, that's a really interesting one from a generative AI perspective, because you are pulling, you know, inspiration or the AI is basically using data mm -hmm. from all sorts of sources and then bringing it together. Is that its IP? And obviously, that's why we've got actors strikes and writer strikes in Hollywood at the moment, because yeah. that's a really, really juicy question um, that uh, that needs to be absolutely debated, um, because, again, it isn't necessarily about replacing the human. I use generative AI a lot. I use it to generate more ideas because um, it sometimes comes up with stuff that I, I haven't thought about and I can then yeah. jump off from that. Um, but typically mm -hmm. the content it generates for me at the moment generally does need a lot of editing. <laughs> so it's not a case of it does absolutely everything for me. Um, what it does no. is... is... And you see patterns. You see the yeah. words it keeps reusing. So there is even some kind of game I saw on LinkedIn uh, where people play uh, guessing if the email has been written by g generative AI, and because you know lots of lots of people just take spray and pray to the next level. Yeah, yeah, you can usually tell <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, there's there's lots of debates. I, I I'm um, involved with a couple of universities, and there's a big debate there around. Um, obviously, a lot of students are using generative AI to generate essays, and I actually don't necessarily have a problem with that as long as they have thought about it. And if I can then ask them questions afterwards, take them into a, um, a much more situation around, do they actually understand this or have they just used the mm -hmm. AI to be lazy? Again, we like being lazy. Um, it's the understanding mm -hmm. that's the important bit, to be perfectly honest. So that then puts pressure on educators to say, well, the essay might not be the be all and end all here. We might need to look at different ways of assessing students so that, yeah, they can use AI, but I, it's their understanding of that. Um, and as I said, using yeah. it as a jump off point rather than something that just writes your essay for you um, is, is kind of what they're going to probably how they're going to be 
working in business. So if you're looking at education, yeah. fueling skills that we need in business, I suspect we're all going to be using generative AI because it is a useful tool. It stops that blank sheet mm -hmm. of paper syndrome for a start. Um, it can stop you from reinventing the wheel uh, by reinventing the wheel effectively. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, it, it can improve our productivity and, and then enable mm -hmm. us to do, as I said, hopefully it takes away the boring and mundane stuff. I, I'm an optimist, by the way. It takes away the boring and mundane stuff and allows us to... to I can see it. <laughs> actually allows us to do the things that humans are good at um and as i said yeah. if it reduces our workload as well does that mean we can work less that is a very big question because up until now to be perfectly frank and honest um technology has intensified our work uh, rather than necessarily taking it away so um there is the anxiety that, that we end up just working more and more and more if uh, if we become more productive using ai rather than using that time to take a, a well de well deserved day off <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I really like the concept of personalization, which uh, AI gives in education, right? Like I remember, I'm still, I'm 35, so I still had physical, uh, physical books I had to learn. And some of the things were outdated, even though you had to, every year you had to buy new, like there were new editions, but still things were outdated. Yeah, completely. Uh, so I just wonder how kids of even today and, and kids of the future uh, will consume and, and, and knowledge and learn to create, to, to formulate their own. Yeah, it's less about learning by rote. It's kind of learning how to apply that knowledge, um, which, again, I think is what makes us uniquely human. Um, so uh, so I, I, there, there is a, a, a quote that was attributed to Albert Einstein saying, you know, if, if you actually glue together, it's not the exact quote, but, you know, if you glue together humans and machines, actually, you could you could create something remarkable. Um, and that's why mm -hmm. I, I keep saying, I think my, my focus in the future is very much around how do we augment? How do we get humans and machines together? Um, because we do do very different things. Um, but, you know, how do we how do we get the, the strengths of the machine allied with the strengths of the human? Because actually that that's mm -hmm. that's the perfect place to be the the analogy mm -hmm. well it's not an analogy that the, the example i tend to use is in the chess world um so uh, in in the chess world particularly uh, i had the pleasure of being at a conference with gary kasparov a couple of years ago who was mm -hmm. infamously beaten oh. by a machine but rather than giving up chess he had just invented a new way of doing chess so um, mm -hmm. there, there's uh, i think it's called augmented chess um but uh, i might be wrong mm -hmm. on that but basically it's, it's a person and a machine playing a person and a machine um uh, and of course, then also the way that grandmasters train now is not against other grandmasters. They train against the AI because um, the AI mm -hmm. is the best player. So it, it's mm -hmm. changed the whole dynamic around chess. So rather than destroying the game, it's made it you know, intriguing. And I think that's mm -hmm. probably what we need to look at in terms of the world of work as well. It can it can be yeah. it can change the game in terms of that augmentation piece and it can change how we train as well. Um, by mm -hmm, giving us mm -hmm. the best and the most up-to-date content that we can then jump off and create stuff that we do yeah. when, when we're uniquely yeah, yeah. human. So. Yeah, I saw this, uh, in a way it's related to this, um, say, like this quote from somewhere that AI is not going to take your job, but the manager or the person who uses AI will. So I guess in the end we will end up with uh, who has the best trained, best uh, personalized or fit to whatever the work they are doing um, algorithms so they will be uh, having um, you know advantage yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah hmm.
Interesting. Okay, let's put your uh, futurologist uh, hat again. So I keep recalling the uh, scene in Ma Matrix where Neo needs to pilot the plane, or oh, it was a helicopter, I don't remember. And, and he gets his uh, skill, the skills of, of <laughs> piloting the plane uh, loaded yeah. immediately. I, I think like people get joy of living and get joy and get such a satisfaction from overcoming um, challenges and learning things. So if such thing ever happened, what would be left of, of living? <laughs> what would be left of, of sense of life? Yeah, I mean, mastery is one of those big motivators. My, again, my PhD was on the psychology of motivation, uh, largely. So mm -hmm. we know that, uh, that mastery of a task um, uh, and curiosity, you know, learning new stuff is, mm -hmm. is actually something that does motivate us. If it becomes as mm -hmm. easy as just downloading it, would it be quite as satisfying? Um, mm -hmm. Well, it's easy. I mean, it's it would be lovely if I could have downloaded how to play a ukulele and, and be able to play it. It's been, you know, I still don't, I'm still not a master of the ukulele, but um, I practice every day. I'm getting better. Um, but it's, it's partially, you know, that practice that, that's the fun bit. You, you get like. annoyed, but then you get, as you, as you do it more and more, you get, you get to the point where you actually enjoy it. Yeah. And, and I think actually mastery is one of those interesting ones around AI, because if it takes the simple stuff away, that's the simple stuff is what we normally train on. Um, so, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, if I don't know how to do the basics, I probably can't master the rest of it. Um, and that's again, mm -hmm. a big debate. Even things like, well, flying a plane, you can do remotely. You don't have to download anything. So uh, unlike Keanu, um, actually, there are autopilots that do it. Um, uh, the danger yeah. then is pilots forget how to fly an aircraft, um, and they're the, the safety backup. Um, so actually, mm -hmm. the, that industry now, pilots do have to retrain very frequently on the basics. Um, they quite often do uh, take disengage the autopilot, so they do actually do certain mm -hmm. things manually, so they remember how to do it. They refresh their skills. So I think there mm -hmm. there is a, a, a an interesting learning capability there that we we need to build in. It disrupts education as well. So I keep saying that uh, our sort of linear um, way of thinking about education, then work, then retirement is completely disrupted. Actually, Linda Grattan at London Business School has done uh, some fabulous mm -hmm. research on this. But if we're if we're having our skills sort of either taken away by machines or we need to refresh those skills continuously that means that we have to educate ourselves continuously as well rather than front load mm -hmm. education into our young years and that's got a profound implication on well you know universities and, and employers as to you know how do we educate older people um throughout their career um people that might not be retiring either so <laughs> so that's one mm -hmm. of the more depressing mm -hmm. things um that if we li mm -hmm. live longer we're probably going to have to work longer um and our mm -hmm. skills are more likely to get, um, you know, uh, uh, automated, I guess, out. Um, so, yeah, the, 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 there are a lot of implications on the education system. I always say the future of work and the future education are completely entangled. Mm. So, mm. yes. And to your point about living longer, um, you've heard of the, the guy um, in America, the uh, Brian Johnson, mm -hmm. uh, Johnson James from yeah, a Blueprint. So his aim is not to die, yes. but his objective is to, to live up to, I think, 200 years. Yes. <clears throat> would, you, would you want that? Again, we looked at science fiction. A lot, a lot of the, 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 uh, the um, even films or novels uh, that are about longer lives, uh, whether you're mm -hmm. a superhero or, or whatever, um, 
often mm. it's miserable <laughs> it depends i mean if if you're living to 200 and all your friends are dying at 70 because they can't afford all of the things that you've done to, to yes. um, you know replace your blood and all sorts of things that then you replica them and yeah. then you have them somewhere <laughs> on the cloud <laughs> yeah you just download them to the cloud and their company for you yeah i'm not sure i'm not sure um i i, I mean i again back Back in my my deep futurology days, there there were quite a lot of discussions around what would happen if we could um, mm. make death die. Um, there mm. are lots of quite negative implications for that, as well as uh, some positive. But um, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, but we we do live longer. We we are, although COVID took the figures down a bit, sadly. Um, so longevity has oh. gone down by a few years globally. Um, but uh, oh. whether that will continue. I, I don't know. It depends how long COVID's going to be around, to be perfectly honest, or whether we get a wave of something else coming in. But um, but yeah, um, we're not. Living oh, we are optimists. I'm don't an forget. optimist. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and I forgot you also have something in common with like we have something in common. I train karate, uh, and I know that you are qualified judo coach. I am. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes. Again, that's something I haven't done for a while. But yeah, I was very into judo. Um, Wow. How many years have you trained? I trained from about the age of 18. I gave it up when I was about 32. Um, but uh, oh, I, I got more, my, my body was destroyed, as many judoka find. Um, so I, I definitely have terrible fingers. Uh, they're all bent and, and shoulders and knees um, now. So I, I mm -hmm. gave up the latter years with coaching. Um, but then my job uh -huh. got, I was in a global post at that point. So it was very difficult to keep the training up. Um, to get all the coaching qualifications so sadly I, I had to give judo up but I still go and watch it whenever I get the opportunity mm. so. and the base uh, the basics like the foundations of what uh, martial arts uh, teach us is you know the discipline uh, respect and, and helping others um, you still have it within yourself <laughs> Yeah, um, I think it's, it, I've always called judo human chess. Um, so it's mm -hmm. a really good mental um, discipline as well as, as a physical one. Um, and, and also, I mean, I used to teach kids as well. And you just see some, mm. some kids who are, there was one that was, you know, he, he was heading t towards a bad pathway. Um, uh, right. And he, he took up judo and there was a discipline there that hadn't been there before. And, and he started to even just achieve things at school that he didn't before and you mm -hmm. could just see the transformative nature of, mm -hmm. of, of mm -hmm. I mean judo strictly speaking isn't a martial art it's a sport but obviously its roots are, are, are jiu-jitsu um, but that yeah, mm -hmm. all of those things that solid foundation I think is a, is a good rule for life um, but yeah it, mm -hmm. it, it's mm -hmm. also very tactical <laughs> as you know um, yeah. and also the thing I love I'm, I'm very small I'm only five foot three um, I always say that's it's about the only sport where there's a huge advantage of being incredibly small so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one expects that you can beat them up. <laughs> well, also, you've That's got a nice. low center of gravity, which is uh, which is an advantage uh, in in judo. So yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, and uh, to your point, I saw lots of um, great initiatives around in like Brazil, rural places, or disadvantaged uh, places in Brazil, um, teaching kids uh, jujitsu. Yeah. It's just yeah. Absolutely. Changes, changes their future. It does indeed, yeah. I think that's the really positive mm. thing about a, lo a lot of sport, to be honest, but um, mm. martial arts uh, in particular, yeah. 
When do you find time for the old, well, all I, those I, things? <laughs> I don't with judo anymore, sadly. But uh, but yeah, no, I have other. Yeah, but like movies, movies, playing, <laughs> singing. It's amazing. It's amazing. You're an inspiration to others. Oh, thank you. Okay, <laughs> last question because I know that we are run uh, run of the, out of time. So, what advice would you give to companies, but also individuals um, who aim to bridge gap between tech and uh, human centric experiences? What would you tell them or advise them to um, to make it easier? Think about the customer, think about the user and, and ask those questions. As I said earlier, is it useful? Is it usable? Who else is going to use it? Um, because mm-hmm. those are just fundamental things that do need to be answered. And I think, again, technologists are brilliant um, and they invent some very clever stuff that will never, ever be used. <laughs> so, Or not now, in the future. Well, there is sometimes, I mean, I've worked on a lot of technologies that really you know, we're, we're way before the t- their time and not ready to be adopted. Um, and yeah. that is a question as well. It might be that it might never get adopted. Actually, some of those technologies that I worked on 20, 25 years ago are now, video was one of them actually, so <laughs> are part of our, our, uh, our everyday lives. Um, so, I mean, that one, to be honest, always looked promising. It was just, it, it was always yeah. the next big thing. It was always just about to take off. And to be mm-hmm. honest, it was starting to pr- prior to the pandemic. But you know, as we know, the pandemic changed everything on on that particular mm-hmm. one, and that's probably one of the one tech, one of the technologies that we've seen the most acceleration on um, uh, via the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and now obviously we end up spending hours and hours on back to back video calls, which is not necessarily a good thing, to be honest. Um, no, so no. again, cognitive load, tiredness, all of that stuff. Our problem often is we just lift the analog into the digital without thinking, should we do it? Um, it's not mm-hmm. to say video calls are bad because they are incredible. Um, back-to-back ones are not so good, though, because our brains mm-hmm. are not built to do video calls all day. Um, and in a frictionless mm-hmm. environment, that's often what we were doing, particularly um, during lockdowns. I, I used to joke that I used to have a perpetual, uh, um, uh, when I woke up, I'd, I'd have a, a perpetual sense of Zoom. Um, so... Uh, but obviously other platforms are available, but, um, but yeah, um, that, that's another big point of discussion that we probably shouldn't go into, <laughs> but I have got a paper out on meetings. So if, if anyone wants to read it, um, they are most welcome hmm. to ping me. Okay. Yeah. Um, please do share the link. Okay. So, so less zoom, <laughs> less, less video calls. Well, potentially. That, yeah. I think we need to yeah. question meetings, um, and whether this, mm-hmm, this should mm-hmm. be a meeting, um, but uh, and video mm-hmm. again is, is yeah it's a great tool um and i certainly have spent quite a lot of my time today on video so uh, and it's been very mm-hmm. productive so it's a case of it's productive and it's good brilliant yeah yeah everything in moderation right? absolutely right <laughs> <laughs> nicola thank you so much it's a pleasure thank you